Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. A lot of fun on uh, the show today. Uh, we were talking about parliamentary punch-ups. Philip Cowley uh, was uh, describing how it's more likely that you get a punch-up in Parliament if uh, if politics is very tight and nobody's got a big majority. Uh, so we actually, we touched a little bit on punch-ups in the office with uh, the commies in just a moment. First, though, given everything that's been going on, I wonder what's on the telly. With a gentle start to the day, looking for a place in the sun... I'm delighted to be here in Kigali. Rwanda is one of the world's fastest growing economies, one of the world's safest countries, and has a proud track record of hosting and integrating people. Rwanda has the capacity to resettle many thousands of people and is able to quickly stand up the necessary accommodation once flights begin. During my trip, I've had the opportunity to visit housing projects that people will come to call home. I've also experienced the kindness and compassion of the people of Rwanda and the vibrancy and beauty of their country. Right, enough of that nonsense. It's time for this. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Good morning. I once threw a chair at somebody in the office. Was it John Humphreys? No, it was Victor Lewis Smith, so it was necessary. <laughs> it was, it was necessary. <laughs> but it was when you were at the Today programme. Uh, no, no, it was on another programme. Another programme. I, I, I threw the chair. I missed, but uh, I'm pleased I did it. <laughs> wow. Uh, Rachel Sylvester's here. Rachel, have you ever thrown morning. anything at anyone in the office? No, I haven't. I can't apparent, imagine you apparently would. Apparently, Gordon Brown once threw a chair across the office after reading one of my columns. So That's his good ass. moment. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Badge of honour, I think. Yeah, I think throwing a chair is quite... Yeah, it's quite big. Yeah. yeah as Libby will know. But yeah. Very good. Well, well done. Uh, right, uh, let's turn our attention to Suella Braverman. She's been in Rwanda... Uh, telling us all how lovely it is and why it would be lovely for all the people she's going to send there. Uh, although, so far, she hasn't managed to. But uh, a photo of her laughing uh, at, outside one of the facilities went viral yesterday. Um, it's been, I mean, we should point out, it's been quite tightly cropped because she was surrounded by a group of what appeared to be uh, um, Rwandan people giving her a tour. They were all laughing as well. And it's then been uh, photoshopped to have her laughing outside Auschwitz and all sorts. What do you think of this, uh, Libby? I mean, is it possible to to disagree with Suella Barberman without, you know, twisting a photo like that? 
Yes, it is. And I mean, call me a humorless old boot, but I think photo cropping and spiteful selection is the lowest form of journalism and an insult to the art of photography as well. Uh, people do laugh when they're in company with a lot of upbeat Africans. If you've been there, you know that. Um, uh, on the other hand, yes, I mean, I disagree with the policy. I think it's a gimmick. I don't think it's going to work. But that was, I mean, that, that was shameful, the people who have cropped it in that way. Um, we all have wrong expressions on our face some of the time and uh, I, I, I think it's a very very low form of journalism the Times front page picture is perfectly decent she's just standing there looking as if she's explaining something that's fine um, what do you think, Rachel? Well, I, I agree with Libby about the photoshopping and cropping to distort, but I do think there is something about the way in which she seems almost gleeful about this policy, which is pretty ill thought through. And the government's sending these really mixed messages, because on the one hand, is it, it's, you know, this policy is supposed to be a deterrent to anyone coming across the channel on a small boat. But on the other hand, it's you know, cross the channel in a small boat and end up in Rwanda in a sort of luxury development with interior designer <laughs> that the Home Secretary wants to borrow and a, you know, free gym membership. So which is it? Is it meant to be awful, you know, and nobody yeah. should come? Or is it meant to be this uh, great sort of land of milk and honey? And the, the smiling sort of and laughing plays into that sort of land of milk and honey, and which it of, isn't. It, on the inside of the Times, there's another photo of her in Kigali, standing in front of sort of Kigali letters spelt out, like she's in sort of Las Vegas or something. With her doing a sort of, I don't know what that is, not quite thumbs up, is it? She's got her fingers up as well. But it's sort of like like she's sort on of, holiday. Yeah, or Kigali Tourist Board or yeah. something. Yeah. And I suppose that's the, that's the problem, isn't it, Libby? Is it does send a very peculiar message because part of you would say, well, we might as well come to the UK because, you know, you, might, en you might end up getting yeah. to stay in the UK. And if not, Kigali's lovely, apparently. You know, I mean, I don't understand this. The more money governments and political parties spend on spin doctors and PR advisors and media experts, in quotes, the, the, the more appalling the result is. You know, they're, they're just not very good at it. This is a whole trade which should basically be closed down. Um, they, they don't know how to do it. I mean, I agree, Ra Rachel's right. There's this weird mixed message. And then there's a the sort of the other mixed message of, I am Rishi Sunak. I am doing very, very sensible and careful things alongside Jeremy Hunt and we're being very careful. And then you get this kind of mad prodigal deal with Rwanda. Um, it's, I, I, I don't get it. But as I say, the, the, uh, the optics, as you say, the thing, I mean, they, they, they spend a fortune trying to look good and always end up making themselves look idiots and there's just the problem with it is they're not in the meantime processing the asylum claims that yeah. are here so you the you know rishi sunak is selling himself as this sort of man of competence mm -hmm. and getting stuff done mm -hmm. but, but properly, instead of properly... actually going processing the asylum yeah, claims yeah. you've got sort of thousands of people living in hotels and then you know they're promising that at some point um people will be, be able to come if there are safe and legal routes to legitimately claim asylum in this country but in many parts of the world there are no safe and legal routes legitimately to come so there's a massive hole in the policy um which if hasn't it, been thought through go on, but if you want if you want a deterrent i mean uh, properly policed id cards without which you cannot work or rent 
you know, look look at the Swiss, they don't have a problem. Um, we, we we have resisted this ID card thing um, for so long and it's it's absolutely mad. It, it is one of the simplest ways of creating a fast deterrent without planes to Rwanda. I never understood why we can't pick it up. You know, I'm not saying cards which you have to show to a policeman every time you step outside the house. You know, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about having a proper identity system we never have had. Yeah, and you do have to show a passport if you if you take a job uh you know you have to show some form of id uh if you want to vote actually having a single thing that everyone has which can be used for all of these things would seem to make um will seem to make a lot of sense well we'll see if uh if someone above manages to uh, put anyone on a plane to Amanda other than herself and her pr team uh well that's uh, uh one to keep an eye on uh let's uh come back close to home now and talk about gps uh rachel is part of the health commission uh the times health commission that you're chairing you've been looking at the idea of charging to CGPs and looking at how this works or doesn't in Ireland. Yeah, so Sajid Javid, the former health secretary, suggested this as an idea when he gave evidence to the Health Commission. And of course, Ken Clark also suggested it, yeah. both to us and to you on Times Radio. In fact, I think we could take a listen. Here's a clip of Ken Clark. We may have to look at some means of making the better off patients making some modest contribution uh, to their treatment, which we always have in the case of prescription charges. The Labour Party used to have tremendous rows about whether everybody should get free prescriptions or you should have prescription charges, and that's now taken for granted that we do pay, and we may have to look for other small payments. So there we are. That was, yeah, you're right. So, so it's become an idea which is moving around, but you, as part of the commission, you've been looking at, does it actually work? So I went to Ireland, which is the closest place where they actually do this. They charge, it depends on your particular GP surgery, but it's about €60 Euros for a GP appointment. 6 0 6 0 and €100 Euros if you turn up at any without a GP's referral letter. So it's a serious amount yeah. of money. Imagine if you've got three or four children that really... Um, younger, the youngest children are exempt. It's very unpopular with patients. Um, and in fact, I found out that in Ireland, they're now moving away from this system and they're trying to create a more kind of universal system. They're increasing the number of people who are exempt um, and they're, try they're removing some of the charges because they're worried that it actually hasn't worked properly. And the, so there is definitely a deterrent, I was told, but the danger is, who, are you deterring the wrong people from yeah. coming? So so the, the very poor, it's means tested, so the very poorest don't have to pay. But there's always people who are just above that means test level who are not rich at all um, and are being put off, you know, going to the doctor until it's too late. So I spoke to one woman, her teenage son had had a chest infection um, and she hadn't taken him to the doctor because it was going to cost 60 euros. She thought he's a strapping lad, he'll be fine. And he ended up in hospital with pneumonia. Oh, wow. Which, you know, bad for him, bad for the health service, costs more for they everyone. Because if they'd been caught earlier, it wouldn't have, exactly. wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I spoke to another expert who said it's a problem for people with long-term conditions because, you know, they're, they're put off going for the preventative visit to the GP. Um, so I think it's really interesting that some of these ideas um, that, that may seem appealing in practice there are kind of all kinds of perverse incentives that seem to be not... And the, the experts that I spoke to said, you can't just impose it on the NHS system at the moment. The problem with the GPs, you know, currently is there aren't enough GPs. Yeah. So imagine if you start charging people and they still can't get an appointment because there's not enough GPs, they're going to be even more furious. And I suppose that's the point, isn't it, Libby? Is that this is... Because this is, we sort of... It all gets a bit... Um... 
uh, hard to sort of keep track of the problem that we're trying to address. Last summer, when he was running for Tory leader, Rishi Sunak wanted to charge people for not turning up. And I made the point to him when he came on the show. The problem with the NHS right now is that isn't there aren't, there aren't enough people turning up. He said there were too many people turning up. But if you start deterring people on the basis of financial uh, um, ability to pay rather than medical need, then that creates other problems, as Rachel says. Libby. Uh, obviously, oh. it's way too expensive in Ireland. It's nearly 50 quid. Um, <clears throat> and, of course... The reason for that is that a third of the population pays nothing because they have cards, because they're old or young or ill or poor or whatever. And so that is never a good way around. You just have a gigantic cost for some and no cost at all for an enormous number. Um, the problem is, I mean, it's almost insoluble. I mean, we, we need more GPs, obviously, but there are time wasters. It's always the wrong people, isn't it? There are yeah. absolute time wasters who waste doctors' time. Ask any doctor. You know, I talked to one who said it had the same woman in, in sort of, I think it was 32 times within two months, you know, with absolutely nothing wrong. Um, but on the other hand, there are cases like the lad with the, with the chest infection, you know, where you have to move quickly. So it's very difficult. But I think, uh, I mean, the Irish thing is, is no kind of example, simply because it's just too expensive for those who do have to pay and an enormous number who don't have to pay, you know, in order to sort of subsidise each other. And that that's not just not quite working, as Rachel says. Well, we'll see how it pans out. And obviously, the, the, uh, the Times Health Commission uh, continues. Uh, let's bring in Paul Johnson now uh, the, from the uh, Institute of Fiscal Studies. Hi, Paul. Good morning. Have you recovered from the excitement of the budget? Yeah, pretty much, I think. I think I'm uh, back to normal. <laughs> your kitty, it's like your World Cup. It's like your World Cup. Um, um, let's talk about, because there have been lots of, uh, well, the, a few deals, lots might be over-egging yet, but a few deals done on settling pay disputes. Uh, but plenty others still uh, in the works. How much would it cost, do you think, to, to settle all of the, the pay disputes currently in, uh, in, in, uh, in action? in the uh, public sector? Well, it depends what would be what it would take to settle them. But yeah. to, to, if you were to give them something like we've got for the nurses, um, the or what we appear to have, uh, I mean, it would not be terribly <laughs> difficult, actually, to replicate the one-off increase that the nurses have got, which is about £1,600 last year, because that doesn't go through into following years. So that would still be a few billion pounds. But actually, the Treasury's got a few billion pounds if it wants to do that. The problem is the consolidated increase. Now, that's costing a couple of billion pounds or so. The fact that um, nurses or the NHS are getting 5% rather than the budgeted 3.5%. If you did that across the public sector, that would be another, I don't know, five or six billion next year. So, um, you know, roughly what the Chancellor spent on cutting fuel duty last week. So, um, you know, within, within the bounds of possibility. Um, but if he was to take that out of the health budget, the education budget, the civil service budget and so on, um, then clearly that makes things tight for, for, for schools and, um, and other bits of the public sector. So the real question here is the extent that, uh, that these are settled with more than is currently being um, given to departments. So they, is that being settled because the Treasury is going to borrow more, finding some money from its reserve, or, or because they're asking departments to um, find the money from within the budgets they already have? And originally the government said we can't do big pay rises because they'd be inflationary. Um, was that uh, a little white lie? Uh, are they able to do it now uh, because inflation is coming down? What, what's changed? 
Well, I don't think any plausible uh, settlement was ever really going to be um, inflation. And there's two ways in which public sector pay deals can be inf inflationary. One is that they, they lead to the private sector. You give the public sector so much, you give them 15% and everyone in the private sector wants 15%. Well, um, you know, the, the most that the public sector are going to get, and indeed I think you know, they, would, they would certainly settle for, what's happening in the private sector, which is something like 6% over the last year or so. So it wouldn't be inflationary in that sense. Um, and the second way they could be inflationary is if the government ends up borrowing so much more money that it pumps into the economy that that creates inflation. Well, again, the kinds of amount of money we're talking about, a few billions out of a two trillion pound economy, I think it's unlikely to have that effect. I mean, if it was part of a kind of more general massive borrowing spree, then that might be an issue. So now I don't really think that within the plausible bounds of where we might end up, yeah. you, can, you can think that this will be inflationary. Um, Libby, it is interesting, it does at least appear to suggest that striking works to some extent, that you get offered a pay rise you don't like, you go on strike and the government comes back with a better offer. Well, it's always worked to some extent, hasn't it? I, I must say I, I was quite comforted by what Paul Johnson was saying just now. It all sounds as if it isn't all quite as bad as we fear it might be. But there is this endless competition between the public and private sectors. You know, the private sector sort of um, wanting what the public sector has and the, the public sector saying, oh, well, I could earn more privately. I mean, that is one of the endless problems of envy. Um, but it, it doesn't sound, I may be wrong, I may be reading Paul Johnson quite wrong here, it doesn't sound nearly as bad as I thought our whole situation was. Are you, are you similarly reassured, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the interesting thing is whether the Treasury is going to have to find more money yeah. or is going to force the departments to you know, pay for these settlements themselves. And I don't think the government's decided, to be totally honest. So last week I was trying to, I was asking everyone exactly this question. The unions in the health talks were told very clearly, or they got the clear impression this was going to be new money, it wasn't coming out of the existing budgets. But then the Treasury was sort of humming and hawing about that. Downing Street seemed to not be clear. You would say it would all be decided in the usual way, which implies there could be some new money. Um, and, I, I, the, you, you know, the, it's um, they've got to... I think they have to find new money because the departments were already so squeezed given the other inflationary costs they've already had to deal with. Um, is that right, Paul? It, it is... Uh it could be raised through new money. Is it just, that, or like you said, the Treasury obviously going to be making those choices. They've chosen to cut fuel duty rather than, than fund extra pay rises? Yeah, I mean, the um, I think the government would point to the fact that actually um, public spending on, on services like health and education and so on has actually risen really quite fast over this parliament. Um, this is we are, we are no longer in this period uh, of austerity. And actually, spending has risen more quickly than over a normal period. So they may well be of the view that um, departments should be able to find the money from within their budgets. Now, obviously, within the, within hospitals or schools or whatever, that's going to look very tight. But I think that is almost certainly the conversation that is happening within Whitehall. The, the department saying, look, you know, we need to settle at a number above three and a half percent. And if we're going to do that, we need some more money. Otherwise, we're going to have to, you know, close schools or hospitals or sack sack people or have you and the treasurer will be going back saying look come off it mate you know we've given you some really big increases over the last um over the last few years you can find a couple of billion within your budget that, that that's how the conversation's going and I, I suspect it's right i suspect the decision hasn't finally been made and that there's an awful lot of meetings of that kind going on within whitehall <laughs> as we speak 
I bet, yeah. And the other interesting thing, though, is that if you think that ministers started this whole process off with this sort of macho, we're not even going to discuss yeah. pay. No, 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 we're not no, even no. discussing no. it. Yeah. So now I, I just think the Treasury is going to end up, you know, they just may start with the macho, absolutely yeah. not. You've got to do find it from within your budgets. But I can't see that lasting. I don't know what Paul thinks. Um, I, yeah, I mean, so, go on, Paul. I was going to say, it was exactly as you were discussing. I mean, strikes... You know, strikes um, do work. I mean, the, I mean, a lot of the uh, strikers started out with very high pay demands and the Treasury said that you're going to have absolutely nothing and we're going to end up with some kind of compromise in between. And I rather suspect the same will happen in the discussions between Treasury and departments. It's the same kind of thing. I mean, the departments will come saying, you know, if you do this, it'll be the world's biggest disaster ever. And the Treasury saying there's no money at all and they'll end up with something in between. Exactly. And actually, I suppose the key point is that although they have got a pay rises, it's nothing like what they were asking for and certainly it's a long long way from the 35 percent or whatever it was that the um... but also inflation has fallen so yes. you know the... junior doctors wanted um just finally libby um you think it would all be better if we could sort all this out if we were more like john lewis <laughs> well no i just like the idea of um employee ownership um and i i wanted to go wider than that and think about this human very tribal uh neglected need for loyalty feelings of collegiality i mean for years i felt very bbc even when i hated some of the people i was working with Sorry, um, chairs, and <laughs> i mean i have i have feelings about the times even though i'm just a freelance i think i think we should acknowledge that people need for various reasons it might not necessarily be financial to feel part of some big thing to feel useful yeah. and part of it Paul Johnson there from the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, it's your Partygate Primer. You're listening to the Redbox podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. There was no party. All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. I don't think that uh, that should happen until uh, the investigation is complete. Firstly, I want to say sorry. I deeply and, and bitterly regret uh, that, 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 that that happened. Sue Gray's report has emphasised that it is up to the political leadership in number 10 to take ultimate responsibility, and of course, I do. Yes, God, blimey, that was a trip down memory lane. Partygate, the name given to the lockdown parties in Downing Street. Now, we should remember they didn't directly lead to Boris Johnson's downfall. That was his government's handling of allegations of sexual assault against Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pincher. But the inquiry into whether he misled Parliament about the parties in number 10 will this week come to a head. A four-hour televised grilling by MPs on Wednesday promises to be the moment when the ghost of Boris Johnson will either be finally laid to rest or when we could just possibly see his political career reborn. So today, we're going to bring you the definitive guide to the committee, the key evidence for the prosecution and the defence and what it could mean for Boris Johnson's future in our party gate primer. We'll hear from Boris Johnson's biographer, and a parliamentary expert. But first, we go live to Westminster. The Times' political editor, Steve Swinford, joins me. Hi, Steve. Morning, Matt. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty and walk through the evidence and what both sides will say about it, just sum up for us how big a moment, how big is this week for Boris Johnson? It's huge. He is fighting for his political future 
as a front bench Tory MP. And if, if it goes the wrong way for him, he could lose his seat. Uh, and it would be the end of this incarnation, certainly, of Boris Johnson as we see it. So it, it just explain, when we say, because there are a lot of sort of hurdles you need to get through, how is it uh, that we could go from him answering questions on Wednesday about what he knew about parties to him losing his seat in the Commons? So if the Privileges Committee, which is the body that's, that's conducting this inquiry, sanctions him for more than, with more than a 10-day suspension, that can trigger something called a recall petition, and if enough constituents, which would definitely happen because Labour would make sure it happened, uh, say that they want a by-election, you would then get a by-election. And there is a very strong possibility, given the state of the polls, that Boris Johnson would therefore lose his seat. So that's, uh, that's, the, that's the process um, uh, for this week. So let's remind people, the uh, committee is very clear. It says we're not conducting an investigation into Partygate, because that was obviously done by the Metropolitan Police is about whether or not what Boris Johnson said to the Commons was correct or whether it was misleading. And so this is the question, and crucially, it's whether he deliberately misled uh, the House of Commons. Yes. So today, we are going to see Boris Johnson's defence. So his team are expected to publish, the Privileges Committee on his behalf will publish at some point today a dossier which is dozens of pages long. It may end up coming tomorrow morning, but it's expected today, in which he will basically go on the offensive. He is going to say the inquiry is unlawful, it's politically biased, he's going to have a new WhatsApp message that we haven't seen before, which shows advice he was given before he gave assurances in the Commons that no rules have been broken and no guidance have been broken. And he's going to say that he acted in good faith. There was a general assumption at the time the events were compliant. But as they say, recollections may vary. <laughs> and the Privileges Committee has already given a very different version of events, where in particular, they've published three photos of Boris Johnson at various leaving dues. Uh, and in those photos, there is no social distancing. And it says, it, and has already said, that it should have been obvious to the former Prime Minister that the rules uh, were being broken uh, and that COVID guidance was not being followed. OK, so let's look at some of that evidence as laid out by the committee, the evidence for the prosecution. They say this establishes that Boris Johnson knew and understood the COVID rules. By limiting contact with others, by keeping your distance to two metres, working together as a country to obey the social distancing rules, which everybody understands. I urge everyone to continue to show restraint and respect the rules which are designed to keep us all safe. That means not meeting up with friends or family indoors unless they're in the same household or support bubble and avoiding large gatherings of any kind. So the committee, uh, Steve, says that they, those, all of those statements and many more from Boris Johnson show that he clearly understood the rules regardless of what he was being told. Yes, and that is undeniable. I mean, Boris Johnson was the architect of those rules. He had the final say over those rules. They were implemented on his say-so and after much debate in government. And there is no denial from anyone that Boris Johnson understood both the guidelines and the rules, the laws. Now, that is important because they're two different things. There was social distancing guidance that we should be two metres away from each other. And there were also some laws which said that you should stay home, etc. And if you broke those, we all remember it. But yeah. the, he gave assurances over both of those things. That matters, and we'll come on to why that matters in a minute. So then we move on to the key question, whether or not Boris Johnson misled the Commons when talking about the parties. These are the moments highlighted by the committee with Boris Johnson at the dispatch box. 
All guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. The guidance was followed and the rules were followed at all times. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. I have been repeatedly assured that no rules were broken. So he knew the rules. We've established that. We know the rules were broken because the police decided they were. And he repeatedly told the Commons the rules weren't broken. So how can Boris Johnson say, what could he say, do you think, Steve, that will counter that narrative? Does it all depend on his repeated use? It was interesting how the, how the, the, the language slightly shifted, even during that montage there. The, him relying on the phrase, I have been repeatedly assured, that he's almost putting to one side what he knew about the rules and what he saw with his own eyes. And his statements are, he would say, factual in that he was assured by other people, he says, that the rules weren't broken. And this is the crux of what we're going to see in his defence. So he claims, he was he claimed in the comments he was repeatedly assured. And at the weekend, there was lots of kind of febrile chatter in Westminster about bombshell WhatsApp messages that would defend his case and make it. In fact... I'm told that that kind of sensational reporting was untrue. What it comes down to is one critical WhatsApp message that was sent from his then director of communications ahead of his appearance in the Commons, which said, as a line to take, i.e. this is the Downing Street response to media queries about reports of specific parties, that no rules had been broken. What that message, I'm told, didn't do was provide a broader general assurance that no rules have been broken and didn't extend to other events and parties in number 10. And also it didn't provide an assurance that no guidance had been broken. So that, that matters because in that statement in the Commons, Boris Johnson was absolutely explicit that at all times the rules were followed and the guidance was followed. And clearly the committee thinks that the guidance was not followed. And as you say, we know that the rules weren't followed because fines were, were, were imposed. And, and we should point out a line to take it drawn up by a spin doctor is essentially a PR exercise in how to get through a tricky answer rather than necessarily being what you might always consider to be wholly factual. Uh, but let's um, move on. Let's take a look at some of the, as you said, some of the WhatsApps have already been released by the committee. We're expecting Boris Johnson to release some more uh, later. Um, here are some of the WhatsApp messages from Downing Street officials, which we, we voiced up so people can can really get a sense of them. This is from an unnamed number 10 official on WhatsApp in April 2021. So-and-so worried about leaks of PM having a piss-up. And to be fair, I don't think it's unwarranted. So that was uh, from April 2021. And this is Jack Doyle, Director of Communications, uh, in January last year, uh, discussing again concerns about what Boris Johnson might say. Have we had any legal advice on the birthday one? Haven't heard any explanation of how it's in the rules. And then this is an exchange between an unnamed Number 10 official and Jack Doyle, again voiced up. I'm trying to do some Q&As. It's not going well. I'm struggling to come up with a way this one is in the rules in my head. PM was eating his lunch, of course. I meant for the police bit. But yeah, as ridiculous as the cake thing is, it is difficult. Reasonably necessary for work purposes. Not sure that one works, does it? Also blows another great gaping hole in the PM's account, doesn't it? So, Steve, this, this shows that even people inside Number 10, while Boris Johnson was telling us publicly he'd been assured it was all within the rules, privately, they couldn't work out how to square that with the reality of what they knew. 
And that, that's right, Matt. And what's worth remembering is at this period, there was just revelation after revelation coming out about what had gone on in Downing Street. And what the comms team were grappling there with there was this official line that no rules had been broken and the COVID guidance had become had been followed at all times with the unfolding reality that rules had been broken and that guidance had been repeatedly broken on, on, on a large scale in Downing Street. And obviously they couldn't cope and, and failed to cope with that. And that line eventually collapsed because it was untrue. So um, where does it go then? Uh, is, there a, is there a path, do you think, Steve, um, in which Boris Johnson can successfully persuade the committee? Because it feels like he's got sort of two strategies pursuing this week, discrediting the committee and playing along with it to provide evidence which he thinks will, will win his case. It, you know, somebody's messaged in uh, uh, earlier today, if the Privileges Committee finally didn't knowingly mislead Parliament, uh, with, will all his supporters still be calling it a kangaroo court and demand a retrial? I think it's going to be very, very difficult for him, Matt. And I think that the fact that the committee itself has already said explicitly it should have been obvious to him at the events he attended alone that social distancing rules or guidance was being broken, that presents a real problem for him. And actually, when you talk to some of Boris's closest allies, they privately acknowledge that they think the game is up. They think that he will lose the seat at Uxbridge and, and that the committee will find against him. And it's just a matter of time. So what, what is going on here? Why is he playing along with it? Well, he does hold out a hope. They think their arguments are robust, even if it's a limited one. But there's a broader thing that's happening here, which is about the battle for the court of public opinion. He wants to set out a credible defence for his actions so that if the committee does find that he misled Parliament, he can say, well, I still refute that. I don't think I did mislead Parliament. And here's the reasons why I presented a robust case. My lawyers did a very good job. And it doesn't preclude him then from making a political comeback because Boris Johnson's allies say that even if he loses his seat here, it's not the end for him. They are predicting that there will be carnage at the next elections. The Tories will lose to Labour and the Tories will be in the wilderness for five to ten years. And during that period in the wilderness, who do they think that the party will turn to? <laughs> they think they'll turn once again to Boris Johnson. So it may end this particular part of Boris Johnson's political career, but that does not spell the complete end of it. And also talking to people around him, he wants it, I'm told. He wants to be back in number 10, ultimately. He hasn't lost any of his political hunger uh, and he wants the top job, which I'm sure is news that Rishi Sunak probably won't be welcoming. So regardless of the events here, I think he's setting the stage for a potential future, com uh, future comeback. And as somebody who's done it more than once, you uh, you write off Boris Johnson uh, at your peril. Um, uh, that's uh, I'm something I've done more than once. Um, just finally, Steve, one per Rishi Sunak, you mentioned Rishi Sunak, he, he's not planning to come riding to Boris Johnson's rescue in this if there is a vote on suspending him from the Commons. So tradition dictates that on matters for the Commons, such as the Privileges Committee, there is a free vote. Now, when Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, he uh, controversially uh, whipped MPs to vote against the kind of finding of the Privileges Committee to try to undermine its findings in the case of Owen Patterson, uh, which went terribly wrong and backfired. So Rishi Sunak is going to try to take a neutral position here with a free vote. But that means you're going to get a huge fracturing of the Conservative Party. Uh, our, my colleague Matt, Matt Dayton was in Rwanda and spoke to Suela Bravman yesterday, the Home Secretary, and she indicated that if the committee finds against Boris Johnson, she would oppose that in the Commons and she would support Boris Johnson. And you could see this fracturing across the Cabinet and across Tory MPs. And again, 
this is partly about an eye on the future. Yeah. But for, for, for all of the issues with his public popularity, Boris Johnson is still very popular with Tory members. And obviously Tory members have a pivotal role in determining the next leader of the Conservative Party. And we all remember, Matt, over the course of the summer and the Tory leadership contest, how powerful the backstabber narrative against Rishi Sunak was and how strongly Tory members felt, against, uh, felt about that. So it could well be that you end up with some very senior Tories opposing the suspension of Boris Johnson, even if it's entirely pyrrhic, even if it doesn't really change the result because Labour want to get there because they've got half an eye on the future if the Tories lose the next election and how the members will perceive them if they were to have voted uh, to remove Boris Johnson from the comments. Steve Swift, really appreciate that um, uh, detailed walkthrough, exactly uh, the evidence, the questions that Boris Johnson uh, has got to answer. It's Matt Chorley on Times Radio talking about the fate of Boris Johnson ahead of this week's blockbuster hearing of the Privileges Committee uh, over what he said about Partygate and his insistence he was repeatedly assured that no rules were broken. Let's turn now to Boris Johnson's biographer, Andrew Jimson, who joins me. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Uh, we've also got Alice Lilly from the Institute for Government who can talk through the process. Hi, Alice. Morning, Matt. Uh, good to have you with us. So, um, Alice, explain to us the process of how this, this committee was set up and, and why it's so important they're investigating misleading the Commons. Yes, so the, the Committee of Privileges is a cross-party group of MPs, uh, and that investigates potential contempts of Parliament. Um, so last year, when all of this was happening, we heard all of these allegations about Partygate and so on. The House of Commons as a whole voted to refer this matter over whether Johnson might have misled Parliament, and they voted to refer that matter to the Privileges Committee, which has been investigating it um, ever since. So this is a committee that has investigated other potential contempts of Parliament by other people in other ways. There's not quite a precedent for investigating a former prime minister for misleading Parliament. Um, but really, a lot of this is, is also kind of about Parliament's fundamental ability to actually uphold its own rules, in this case, about ensuring the accuracy of what people say in the House of Commons. Now, of course, the committee is uh, not without its uh, critics. Uh, here's Claire Bullivant uh, from the Conservative Democratic Organisation speaking to Times Radio earlier. How can it be right for a handful of MPs um, who have also, they've all sort of voiced their dislike of Boris, well, a lot of them have, and already made their minds up, but how can they be allowed to determine what happens to him now in his career when they haven't been um, in receipt of all the facts? And... Um, you know, it's it's just a kangaroo court as far as I'm concerned. Kangaroo court, she says. But of course, one of the things she's referring to there is Harriet Harman, who chairs the committee, tweeted in April last year uh, about all of this. Uh, she, she said, what's with those who say the PM knowingly lied but don't think he should quit? Are our standards so low? Uh, talking about misleading the House of Commons. Is this a kangaroo court, Andrew, or is this Parliament doing its job properly? It's certainly not a kangaroo court. Um, Parliament is, is, is completely entitled to do this. The question um, for MPs will be, or one of the questions will, will be whether it's expedient to do this. I do not believe that uh, Rishi Sunak and his colleagues want a by-election in the near future in Uxbridge with, with Boris Johnson at the heart of the campaign for several weeks, absolutely dominating coverage uh, and quite likely losing. But 
um, was a distraction from from Rishi Sunak's project. So I think politically they they will want they will somehow want this not to end um, with with anything as dramatic as that. But of course it could do. And like almost everything that, that Boris Johnson has ever been involved in, not only has him at the centre of it, but it's highly unpredictable how it will play out. Do you do you think that I mean, are we right to still be uh, even investigating the ins and outs of this? He's not prime minister anymore. We've had lots of messages this morning, Andrew. Some people saying, "Well, we never had all this hullabaloo about uh, Tony Blair misleading the House of Commons uh, over Iraq, as we marked that twenty years ago today." Is it something about Boris Johnson that just turns us into a circus? There is, um, but the, the, of course, the, the, the question of who. Um, is entitled to judge him. And there were a couple of by-elections uh, at the end of June last year um, in Tory seats, and the Tories lost them both, Wakefield in West Yorkshire and Tiverton and Huddleston in, in Devon. And at the beginning of July, uh, the Tory party got rid of Boris Johnson. I mean, his own his own colleagues all, all started sort of resigning en masse. Rishi Sunak was one of them. So as he went, so in a sense, he's already been punished by the court of public opinion and, and the Tory party reacting, as they always do, um, with great sensitivity, or one might say like frightened rabbits to, <laughs> to, to, um, to the court of public opinion, that they thought that Boris Johnson had become a liability, and so they chucked him out. They're, they're a very ruthless lot, the Tories. So in a sense, he has already been judged. That, that's why it's quite odd that this thing is coming up now. And he had actually corrected the record in Hansard when the Sue Gray report um, was presented, and he made a statement on the 25th of May uh, last year. So, when of course he was still trying to cling on as, as prime minister. So, <laughs> yeah. in a sense, this has already already been dealt with. Um, and I, whether anyone's actually going to change their opinion about this, I mean, some people absolutely hate Boris Johnson and regard him as the most disreputable man ever to to sully our public life. Other people admire him. Uh, is anyone going to change their opinion? I, I think it's a, I think it's quite unlikely. Just finally, Alice, put this into some uh, context for us, um, historically, uh, of a prime minister, former prime minister, uh, going through this process. Normally, I'll be honest, most of the MPs who get suspended from uh, the comments of breaking the rules tend to be sort of cranks that nobody's heard of. Uh, and the only time they ever make the news is because they've been caught breaking the rules. Um, have we ever seen anything like this before, a former prime minister facing uh, this sort of inquiry, uh, potentially then being removed from the Commons altogether? In short, no, we oh, haven't at all. Yeah. Uh, so this is all pretty unprecedented. Uh, we are in pretty uncharted waters. We've not really seen anything like this before. Uh, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why there has been sort of so much controversy uh, about how this process will work, simply because it is something that is very new. Well, we'll wait and see uh, what happens. Really appreciate your uh, your insights uh, and analysis on that today. Alice Lilly from the Institute for Government and Andrew Jimson, biographer of Boris Johnson. Uh, before that, we also heard from Stephen Swinford live from Westminster uh, talking us through the key questions that Boris Johnson will have to answer. Your, your primer for the Partygate hearings on Wednesday. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs> 